Today we're going to talk about this this rite of communion, the the taking of communion. And different parts of the body of Christ have different perspectives on communion. The Catholic Church, maybe maybe the Greek Orthodox Church, I'm not so sure, but I know the Catholic Church has this doctrine of transubstantiation. And they believe that in the process of taking communion that the substance of the wafer and the substance of the, the juice are literally transformed into the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. Most other Christian denominations would believe that, that they're uh, symbolic and they represent the blood and the body of Jesus. Whether it's actually transubstantiated, I think I have that word right, or it's symbolic doesn't really matter to me because what matters to God is what's in a person's heart. And I wanted you to have this now, and I want you to hold it and and just ponder that whether it actually becomes or it's symbolic, that it's symbolic of Jesus himself. And and that as you hold it, you, you think of the privilege that you have to commune in the very body and the very blood of Jesus. Okay? Primary text for today is going to come out of 1 Corinthians 11. It's Paul's teaching to the church at Corinth about the practices that they were having. And there's many parts of their practice that were out of order. One of those was the actual taking of communion. So before we take communion, I want to teach on communion. When I was in Ukraine for the last long trip, the one month that that culminated with Ashley coming home, the only book of the Bible, I'm not necessarily sure I would say God would allow me to read, but I couldn't connect with anything but 1 Corinthians. And and I've never deeply connected with communion. And in that process, he more deeply connected me with communion. So I've been waiting for an opportunity to teach on this. And Margie's been prodding me, prodding me, prodding me. We need to take communion. We need to take communion. I'm thinking, well, I want to wait because I got this revelation I'd like to share. But it's time. We really are... um, lacking in this particular practice of the church. So I'm going to start in Luke chapter 22 and just read to you the scriptures of the very first time that the Lord's Supper is taken. The context is the Passover. Jesus has gathered together his uh, closest disciples. They're in the upper room. It's the night uh, that he's betrayed and he's taken captive. It's the night before he is beaten and crucified. And in conjunction with the Passover meal, they were celebrating the, the Passover, they did this thing that we would now call take communion or the Lord's Supper. So let me read this to you, and then I'm going to go and read to you the scriptures from 1 Corinthians and then talk about what Paul is trying to get us to understand in this teaching to, the, to all of us, but specifically to the church at Corinth. So Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. When the hour had come... He reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is this cup is poured out for you, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus, they have the Passover supper, they do this ceremony, that doesn't seem like the best word, where Jesus describes the breaking of the bread and the and the taking of the cup. He also girded himself with a towel, and Jesus demonstrated humility to his apostles. He said, what I do for you, you should do for each other. And he washed, literally washed their feet before they went to the garden, and ultimately he was captured, um, horribly beaten, crucified, died, and then was resurrected on the third day, and that will be teaching for another day. So that's the scriptures that describe in Luke's rendition of the Lord's Supper. Now we fast forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to read to you from uh, verse 17 to 34. Uh, I'm going to stop at verse 22 for some context, and then we'll go on to the actual teaching. Verse 17. But in give, Let me back up just a minute. If you read 1 Corinthians, Paul had established uh, the church at Corinth. He'd gone there on a missionary journey, and then he'd eventually gone on to other places to establish churches, and he would get correspondence, or people would come, and they would share with him what's going on in the churches. And, and the church at Corinth had gotten a little crazy. And uh, he had received a letter from them, and he was responding to a number of different things that he was being told were happening in the church at Corinth. And one of those things was when they got together, they would eat this meal. They called it a love feast. But it turns out it wasn't a love feast. It was a, some of them were drunk. And anyway, we'll get to that in just a second. But he's, he's bringing correction to the church. And in his bringing correction to the church, we get more on understanding the significance of taking communion of the Lord's body and of the Lord's blood that helps us to understand the manner in which we should do it and the importance that it has in our lives and how big a deal it is, literally, spiritually, to us. So, the first part is him kind of rebuking them, starting in verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or, you de- or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. So, this part of 1 Corinthians 11 provides the context for some of what you're going to hear in the next verses. Jesus, the first time communion was ever done was taken with a meal. So the Corinthian church took communion with a meal. He talks about divisions and factions within the church. And, and earlier in, I think it's earlier in 1 Corinthians, he talks about, you know, some of you say that you're of Paul and some of you say that you're of Apollos. And I'm glad I didn't baptize hardly any of you because you don't understand that you're not of Paul or you're not of Apollos. Paul planted Apollos water, but God makes the growth happen within the church and within the individual members of the church. So you had these divisions between, you know, well, I'm not a disciple of Paul, I'm a disciple of Apollos. And Paul was rebuking him saying, no, you're disciples of Jesus. 
And then they had issues of the rich people and the poor people. And, and the poor people didn't have much to bring to what they called the love feast. And the rich people brought more. And, and then they would take it and they would eat the food. And the people that couldn't get there as early as the other people would come. And they wouldn't have anything to eat. So they weren't at all behaving in selfless love. They were behaving like heathens almost. So he's trying to bring some correction here. He goes on now in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So I'm going to go back through that course of Scripture and, and, and touch on some of the points that Paul is making. Let's start again in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He started off by giving thanks. Teresa and I were talking about this. We had a lot of time in the car yesterday. We were talking about this, and, and she had a very interesting thought that this isn't Jesus thanking God for the Passover meal. This is Jesus giving thanks for the bread that he was about to break that represented his body and the, the, the juice that they were about to drink that represented his blood. And, and that his thanks was not as we would thank God for providing us a meal, but it was the thanks of someone who was about to, right? It hadn't been broken yet. His body hadn't been broken. His blood hadn't been spilled on behalf of the new covenant, on behalf of the remission of our sins. It hadn't happened yet. He was thanking the Lord literally to be the sacrificial lamb of God, that he was actually presenting to himself in thanks that he would be broken in obedience to the Father. It's pretty cool when you think about Jesus and his character and, and just how totally committed he was to the Father's will in his life that he was thanking God about being broken and about being literally shedding his blood. The second thing he mentions, that, or that I want to mention to you is that he says, this is my body which is for you. See, his body was 
abused in the way that it was abused for us. His body was given on our behalf. And there wasn't a single thing that happened to Jesus in his body that wasn't necessary to happen in his body. Jesus bore the weight of every sin that had ever been committed. He bore the weight of every sin that was being committed. And he bore the weight of every sin that would ever be committed. I don't think we begin to have even a fraction of an understanding because we can't understand the spiritual nature of what was going on. We can understand to some extent the pain that he felt because we we can imagine the picture of his body being ripped apart and the abuse that was done to him verbally and physically, but I don't think we have any sense for the weight of the spiritual torment that Jesus had to suffer in order to carry the weight of every sin that had been or ever would be committed. Think about it. If a person doesn't claim the gift in Jesus Christ that is salvation, then they will pay again for their sin, right? Jesus paid for all of it. It's all paid for. And for those who come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, it only had to get paid for once. But for those that don't place their faith in Jesus, their individual punishment for transgressing God is eternal. It never stops. And it's for every person. And the word says that that, uh, wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many are going to pass down that path. And narrow is the way that leads to life, and only few are going to pass on that path. So there is this huge amount of what Jesus suffered that's going to be suffered eternally by people that don't choose Jesus to be their Lord and their Savior. That eternal punishment had to also happen to him in that time of his suffering. So the magnitude of his suffering, if if, if I think about the hopelessness of eternity without God, going to hell and ultimately into the lake of fire, that, that torment, that that pain, that that anguish will never ever, that weeping and gnashing of teeth will never ever stop, all of that he had to experience in that time. That's why I think we have no concept of what he actually suffered on our behalf. But it was done for us. That's the important point that Paul's trying to make here. Jesus did this for you. He did this for me. His body was broken, and everything that had to happen to him was destined for us. The new covenant in his blood. So there's this covenant between God and Israel. And and I don't know that you'd describe it as a covenant or not, but it must be between God and all of mankind because nobody is without excuse. But the specific covenant was with Israel in the law, in the commandments, and that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ if you should choose Jesus Christ. It had to be consummated with blood. The covenant was in Jesus' blood. I think it's Hebrews that says that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. In in God's divine and righteous economy, all of our sin couldn't have been forgiven without the shedding of blood. And it's, it's interesting to me to think about the forgiveness of sin. It's really not so much that sin was forgiven, right? Because every sin of mine has been paid for. It's not been forgiven, in the grand scheme of everything, it has to be paid for because of justice. So the question is, am I going to pay the price for my sin or will Jesus have paid the price for my sin? It wasn't forgiven in the sense that it was just done away with. It had to be punished. And because I chose Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, I've placed my trust in him for my eternity, God poured the wrath associated with my sin on Jesus. So it was forgiven on my behalf, but not on his behalf. He had to actually carry the weight of my sin. It had to be dealt with. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The primary function of taking communion 
is remembering Jesus. God is all about memorials. If you, if you look through the Old Testament, you see it all over the place. Like when uh, they passed out of the wilderness into the promised land and, and God separated the Jordan. And he had somebody, I think, from each of the tribes pick up a stone out of the river. And when they got to the other side, they set the stones in a pile and they said what that pile means. And when your sons and your daughters see that pile, you explain to them how the Lord delivered you out of Egypt and into this land that he promised you, flowing with milk and honey, where you could live in houses that you didn't build and drink from cisterns you didn't dig and eat from fields and and, uh, crops that you didn't plant. They would forever be building these memorials. They said that that you should ponder on his law. Remember, remember, remember. Always remember. Keep, Keep yourself fresh in the things of God. And that's really what communion is. It's like a memorial to Jesus. If, if we don't continue to remember Jesus and we don't keep at the front of our lives what he did and how he purchased us, then we'll become callous towards it and it'll, it'll become something less than what it really is. So we, we have this thing called communion that's really designed to be a memorial to remember Jesus. I think I'm probably guilty of being too casual with the taking of communion. It's really, really serious business. It's a big deal that it be done properly and with the right heart. And that's what Paul's about to explain now. He kind of replayed back for them Jesus' words that Jesus gave to him personally. Even though he wasn't there on that night when Jesus was betrayed, he had an intimate relationship with Jesus that started on the road to Damascus when he had this bright light and his voice come and and correct him. And then Jesus discipled him personally. So he kind of plays back what we saw in Luke, and now he's going to start to explain to them why their behavior with one another, their, their lack of love and selflessness, is creating all kinds of problems. He goes on in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread, eats the bread, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. There's two different perspectives that the the smart guys, the theologians and the commentators take. One is that when we dishonor one another, we're dishonoring Jesus, and it's his body that they're speaking of, his literal Jesus body, the, the stuff that would be taken here. The other perspective is that we, as the body of Jesus, when we dishonor one another, we're sinning against him. That we don't rightly discern the body. And if you look previously in um, 1 Corinthians in chapter 8, the same problem exists and and Paul corrects it and it it makes a strong point to what he's saying here. So let me just read to you from chapter 8 verses 9 through 13. But take care that this liberty of yours, he's talking about that you can eat whatever you want. He's talking in the context of food, but, but that's just the, 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 the issue that's causing the real problem. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The weak is someone weak in faith, whose, whose understanding isn't as um, complete as you know, the person that he's speaking to here. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge... Dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. 
it almost ties both of those perspectives together. That when we sin against each other, we sin against Christ. And, and when we're inconsiderate to others, like they were having in Corinth, the rich people inconsiderate of the, of the poorer people, or, or the ones that come first inconsiderate of the ones that haven't come there yet, we're literally sinning against the Lord in that process. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Everything we should do should be for the building up, for the edification, and for bringing together. In 2 Corinthians, he talks about this ministry that we have called reconciliation. Remember the sermon, reconciliate this way between man and God, but also a reconciliation that's horizontal between men and, and men, people and people. Their issue is how brothers and sisters treat one another. Are we treating each other in a sense of selfishness or selflessness? Are we treating each other with the example we have from Christ in humility, or are we, are we fleshly and proud? That's the ultimate issue that he's dealing with. The specific of what he's dealing with with the church at Corinth is that they are fleshly, that they're proud, and they're selfish. They don't care about anybody but themselves. And they're literally bringing judgment on themselves in the process. So then continue on in verse 28. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Now, important to understand, the judgment that he's talking about is not an eternal judgment. It's a temporal judgment. So when, when these people are not rightly discerning, they're not loving, and they're not being selfless towards one another, they are literally, by, the, by taking the, the bread and taking the cup, they are causing themselves to be judged by God. Again, not eternally judged. Their salvation isn't the issue here. It's, it's, you'll see in just a minute, it's, it's an issue of discipline. He's trying to bring them back into a right way of behaving, to be like Jesus. He goes on, he says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Weak, sick, and sleep means weak, sleep, sick, and die. Some people, because of their not rightly judging the body, one another, not rightly treating the body, were literally taken, they died. They were taken to heaven right at that point. Now, he doesn't elaborate exactly why that is other than that they didn't rightly judge the body. But we could be sick. Our, our health just can't seem to get right. You know, we can't seem to get well. I just never feel good. We could be um, literally dead. Or we could be sick. We could have sickness that just we can't seem to ever get sickness out of our body. It could be because of the way we're behaving with one another. And then in that behavior, taking communion as we shouldn't. He goes on again then in verse 33. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at eat, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. We're to honestly appraise ourselves, ourselves. There's another place, and I think it's, well, maybe it's Thessalonians. Anyway, one of the scriptures that says Paul 
Paul says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And here he's saying, examine yourself to make sure that before you put this in your mouth and eat and drink judgment on yourself, that you're in a worthy position to actually partake in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That we're to, um, to appraise ourselves before we do this. Also interesting that the discipline, right, the, the sickness the sleeping or death or the weakness is a form of discipline. And, and that discipline is actually a form of mercy. God is trying to be merciful by disciplining us. The discipline that he's choosing in this context is weakness, sickness, or even death so that we won't continue in these wrong ways. In the church, there's different perspectives on whether or not a person could be saved, literally saved, have the Holy Spirit, and then not be saved again. My perspective is that you can, that a, that a saved person got saved because they placed their faith in Jesus as their Savior and they confessed him as Lord over their lives. In that process, you become saved. If you stop to believe in Jesus as Savior or you choose not to from your heart serve him as Lord, I think you can lose your salvation. You, you can become lost again. If you look at the words that Paul uses here in verse 32... But when we are judged, we are the church, right? So we are the born-again, saved, have the Holy Spirit church. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So the discipline is a really big deal. It might even be that somebody who is disciplined to the point of actual physical death was disciplined to that point so that they wouldn't be condemned along with those that aren't saved eternally. It's a really big deal. I don't want it to be a thing where we're afraid, like, oh, I'm never taking communion. It's not to be like that at all, but we need to understand that when we take that bread and we take that cup, that we take it in a way that recognizes how important it is to be right with one another before we do it. Unity and brotherly love are like number one priority for Jesus. The, the first commanded, commandment, to us is to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, mind, all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But it's interesting, when you read about these commandments, all of the law and all of the prophets, everything that you would see in God's leading up to and foreshadowing and foretelling Jesus are fulfilled in the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And if, if you really study what it means to love God, the way the New Testament teaches it, what you find out is when you do the second commandment, when you love your neighbor as yourself, you are fulfilling the first commandment of loving God. So the way that you love God isn't necessarily to, to have this affectionate, you know, whatever our idea of love might be. Your affection towards God is, is by loving each other. It's demonstrated in love for one another. That's how... Everything is satisfied. It's in our love for one another. So if you look in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Jesus gives us another kind of perspective on that same thing. He says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first, be reconciled to your brother, then come back and present your offering. Israel had all of these different ways that they had to Things they had to offer to God to atone for their sins. They had this one and this one and this one and this one. All these different ways in the, in the perfect way that they had to be done. You would think that bringing something to the altar was the very center of life if you were a Jew. 
But what Jesus is saying, no, the center of life is to be right with one another. And that God, no matter how huge this uh, offering that you're bringing to the altar, it's, it's zero to him if you have an issue with a brother. And first, and, and, and I've heard people quote this scripture, if anybody, if you have an issue with anybody, go first get the issue resolved. That's not what it's saying. What it says is if anybody has an issue with you, if you're the source of the, of the disconnect between you and somebody else, put down your offering for the Lord, almost like even before you offer him worship, that, that maybe our worship doesn't even find its way to him if we have some issue that we've created that's unresolved between another brother. He says, put it down, go humble yourself and make right whatever you did, then come back and present to me your offering. Because now it has some value to him. But the person who's offering an offering that won't go and humble himself and be reconciled, that offering, God doesn't even want it. He said, put it down and go do this first. So before we take communion, some things we should do. First is we examine ourselves. Again, We don't examine ourselves to see if we're worthy of Christ's sacrifice. We are worthy of Christ's sacrifice because he determines our value. And he sacrificed himself on our behalf. So we don't don't examine ourselves for worthiness unto Christ. He determines that worthiness. We, we, We examine ourselves as to worthiness to take the body and the blood based upon the way that we've been taught that it should be taken. Am I honoring the body, the Lord himself, and his body, the church, my brothers and sisters? Does anyone have anything against me? Go first and get that dealt with. If you do, then the way that you get right for communion is you confess. And then you profess or you commit to repent. So if I examine myself and I find that the Holy Spirit is stirring me towards something that I wasn't aware of, I say, thank you, Lord. I confess back to him. He says in his word that if we will confess our sins, he is, I always forget this one, righteous and just, faithful and just, thank you. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. First John someplace, chapter one, I think. So the issue isn't, oh man, I, you know, I'm not supposed to take, it's, it's examine yourself. Is there something that needs dealt with? I don't think you even have to actually go and, and do the, the reconciliation. You have to confess it. You have to com- commit to repentance. And then ultimately you should go back and do what, what you said you were going to do. At that point you're done with that first part, examining ourselves. Very important that we examine ourselves. The second is that we remember Jesus. Jesus said when you do this, the ultimate reason that you do it is in remembrance of him. It's a memorial. It's a way for us to keep Jesus and his sacrifice fresh in our hearts and in our minds so that it's easy for us to love him and to serve him, especially in the hard ways that we're going to get called on to serve him. So, Before we take communion, we're going to take a minute and examine ourselves. And I want to just give you some scriptures that will help us to be remembering of Jesus. There's some prophecy, there's some scriptures here that speak to his character, and then certainly some scriptures that speak to his selfless sacrifice. So let me start in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6. All of these, these, both of these Isaiah scriptures were fulfilled. They They are true as if they were speaking them after the fact, but these are actually speaking them before the fact. Isaiah 50 and verse 6 of Jesus. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Isaiah 53 verses 2 through 5. He is Messiah Jesus here. For he grew up before him 
like a tender shoot, the Father, Jesus before the Father, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Speaking of Jesus. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Mark 3.11 Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. John 15.13 Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Matthew twenty six sixty seven. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him. Luke twenty three thirty three and thirty four. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, "Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing." Then the last scripture I want to share with you before we actually ponder, examine, is from Matthew twenty six thirty nine. Jesus had celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. Jesus broke the bread and they shared the cup that was his body that was given for them and the wine that was his blood shed for the remission of their sins that was the seal of this new covenant that he was the arbiter ar- arbiter of then they got up and they went to this place called the garden of Gethsemane because Jesus knew what was coming and he asked his disciples to pray for him and then he went off to the side and he prayed himself and he prayed these words and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying my father if it is possible let this cup pass from me yet not as I will but as you will So here's Jesus with full knowledge of what's about to happen to him, understanding the torment and the physical pain and torture that they're going to take and literally, you saw it prophesied, they were going to pull his beard out of his face. They're going to put this crown of thorns, long thorns into his head and jam it down into his flesh. That he was going to be beaten with sticks, that he was going to be punched and slapped, that he was going to be spat upon. And remember, he humbled himself from the throne to come down and do this on behalf of us. 
Jesus knew that he was going to be flogged to the place that he would be unrecognizable as a human being, that his body would be opened up and that his organs would be exposed by the cat of nine tails, tearing his flesh away from his, his rib cage and his body. He knew that he was going to be dragged out or, or dragged across up to this hill and that he was going to be stretched out and that he was going to have his spikes driven through his wrists and, and through his feet and that he was going to hang there naked until he was dead. And he said, Father, if there's any way, that's the cup that he's speaking of. If there's any way that I could drink from some cup other than this cup, please. But not your will, or not my will, but your will be done. The reason I picked this one to be the last scripture is every person that doesn't have Jesus as Lord and Savior, this is the cup that they're going to drink from. And they're going to drink from it eternally. And we would stand before the Lord before God. We couldn't call him Father if we weren't saved. But, but right now, if we're not saved, if we don't have a right relationship with God for our eternity, we could say, if this cup could pass me, please, if there's some way that this cup could pass me, and he would say there is. There is a way that this cup could pass you. It's that my son would drink from that cup on your behalf. And when I think about that, me pleading for my own eternity, for my own life, me to not have to experience the torment eternally, with no hope. There is no hope. Once you stand before the Lord and you're judged, you're done. You can't repent. You can't confess. You can't cry out to Jesus. You're done. There is no hope. And it never, ever, ever ends. And you know what? In that moment, for every person that's going to be judged, they'll know that it's a righteous judgment. There won't be one person that will have an argument before God that it's not righteous, that they're going to receive what they're going to receive. And they're done forever. But right now today... We can say, Father, I don't want to drink from that cup. Is there any way that this cup can pass me? And and for us, the answer is yes. You could have my son drink of it on your behalf. I say, Jesus, drink it on my behalf. And when I think about Jesus drinking from that cup on my behalf, it makes me take this communion in such a way that I want to live my life the way he prescribes me to live my life. That I don't want to be the guy coming to the love feast and eating up all the food, which is I would be that guy, by the way. If I had a sin, it would be that if you didn't get there before me, there would be nothing for you to eat when you got there. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to continue to be that guy. I want... Quit agreeing with me so heartily, (laughs) my (laughs) daughter-in-law. She knows me. The point is, that's the heart that we should have when we do this. So now, let's take a minute individually and examine ourselves and ask the Lord to show us if there's anything at all that needs to be confessed or repented from. If you haven't confessed Jesus sincerely as Lord and Savior... This is not something you should do. And there is no shame if you don't take communion today. You just leave the little cup right on the thing. It's a mature person that recognizes that they are not in a place that's appropriate to take communion. There's no judgment from the church. It's wisdom. But if the Lord doesn't convict you of anything, if you're not aware of anything in your own heart or mind, spend a minute... Remembering Jesus, these scriptures are wonderful ways for us to remember Jesus, that he drank that cup on our behalf, not the cup of this, but the cup of wrath that was poured out over him. Then together we'll take the communion. So take a minute, examine yourselves, remember Jesus, and we'll pick back up.
said, do this as often as you do in remembrance of me, Lord Jesus. We remember you, Lord, but we don't want to take it in an unworthy way. I had something that the Holy Spirit reminded me of that I had to confess and commit to repent from. I thank you, Jesus. I do not want to take this cup or this bread in an unworthy manner. Thank you for your goodness. I remember you. Help me to remember you more. Okay. Well, there's, um, there's a little double dealy on here. There's a little skinny part on the top. You peel that back and it'll reveal to you the little wafer. And then in just a second we'll peel the other part back and we can get at the juice. Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you that he offered his body on behalf of us to be broken. Not his bones because the prophecy said not a single bone would be broken. But his skin was torn and a spear was pressed right up into his heart from his side. He was bruised and horribly abused to carry the weight of each and every one of our sin. Father, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your body broken on our behalf. And we take this in remembrance of you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood. We apply your blood to every area of our lives. We thank you that it's your blood that causes our sin to be washed away. We thank you that you are willing to shed your blood, that there could be a new covenant. We thank you that there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood, and that that it didn't have to be ours. It couldn't have been ours. We couldn't have shed our own blood to remit sin. We were eternally damned in our sin. We thank you that we could place our faith in you, that our hope is 100% in your perfect blood that was shed. We agree to the covenant. We thank you, Lord, that you offered your blood on our behalf. And we take this in remembrance of you. There's debate whether this is a reference to communion. It hadn't happened yet, but Jesus said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any place in me. We thank you, Lord, that we can eat your flesh and we do drink your blood, that we consume you daily as our provision, as the bread of life and living water. We ask you, Lord, to walk with us. We thank you that you walk with us. Help us to be the light of this world, a beautiful shining city on a hill, drawing people unto you. You said that if you would be lifted up, that all men would be drawn unto you. We thank you for your drawing. We thank you for your salvation. We ask your blessing and your anointing to go and be your witness. Every day, every place, everywhere we go, we confess to you that we are your body 
and that we are about your business, seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. We praise you and we thank you and we say our prayers to you, Father God and Lord Jesus, in your own very name.